Good evening and welcome to Tuesday Topics. This is Paul Edwards and I am overjoyed that there are folks listening in to us and, and who will be able to take part later in the program. For the moment though, I want to begin by talking some with our guest, Eric Bridges, who is the Executive Director of the American Council of the Blind. And rather than start at the macro issues that concern the fate of Americans who are blind, let's start with the Eric Bridges household. As many of you may know, Eric has uh, two boys, one four months old and one nearly five, Eric? Uh, he's five, yeah. He is five. Be six so, in uh, August. Wow, so we're, we're homeschooling one child and dealing with a four months old. What's that like, sir? The fate of six living beings in one townhouse in Arlington, Virginia. <laughs> it's, um, it's, uh, it's an experience unlike uh, anything I've ever had or probably will have. Uh, there, there are aspects of it that are just absolutely amazing. Um, getting to watch, uh, you know, our youngest, Noah, have his third month and his fourth month on this earth during uh, the stay-at-home period and watching him flip over uh, for the first time a couple weeks ago. Pretty amazing stuff, Paul. You know, it's, spending 24-7 overall with my family is, is, is really very cool, but it gets intense around here because they're kids. One's a baby and one's, one's a five-year-old that, you know, really needs to be around his friends and going to school uh, and all of those things. So the, the demands on our time while we're trying to work full time, um, it, it can get, uh, it can get pretty loud around here. <laughs> and how's yeah. the five-year-old adjusting to Noah? Oh, he loves Noah. He absolutely loves Noah, but he, you know, Noah is not that much fun yet. You know, he's getting to be more fun, but, you know, he's not, he's not up and walking and all that stuff yet. But, uh, you know, Tyler, Tyler loves to, to try and tickle him and all this other stuff. So it's, it's cool. That's excellent. They're only getting so, to know one another better. So, so as, as blind parents, how accessible has the homeschooling exercise been for you guys, for Tyler? Uh, it's been a challenge. So there is the, you know, the underlying accessibility of apps and websites um, that are hit or miss that the school district has, you know, elected to utilize. Uh, but there's there's another component of it, too, that, has been very challenging. And so even if some of these apps or websites, Paul, were completely accessible, some of the exercises <clears throat> that a five-year-old is expected uh, to perform in, in the day-to-day -day kindergarten, right? Stuff like right. tracing and drawing and writing, those things are, are nearly impossible for Rebecca, my wife, and I to, to be able to verify independently. So we've had to resort uh, to FaceTiming with grandma <laughs> to independently confirm uh, that he's done what he said he's done and that it was done correctly or utilizing services like IRA 
to get assistance in, uh, you know, instructions for paperwork sheets that have been sent home or other, other things like that. So uh, it's been a trial by fire where we've had to think about literally all the tools in our toolbox and figure out how we can uh, ensure that he's learning something every day. I mean, I even resorted to uh, pulling out the change in my pocket. So I pulled out a quarter, uh, a dime, a nickel, and a penny. And we learned mm -hmm. the meaning of change. And then I, I had him make me change. So all that adds up to 41 cents. So it became learning about change, but really it became a math exercise. So it was cool. He, he enjoyed it. Now, After 10 minutes, the, then we had to move right. on. <laughs> <laughs> one of the interesting things, I guess, is if we, if we had been asked to do this three or four years ago, or let's say five years ago before the advent of FaceTime and before the advent of IRA, uh, I'm, I'm not sure you guys would have been able to do it. It would have been, unfortunately, impossible to verify some of the visual stuff. Right. We can work on math with him, you know, without needing to have him write stuff down. But literally, he's in a very formative stage right now. As yes. you know, you've, you've got kids and you've got grandkids. And, I do. You know, learning, learning to write a sentence, uh, learning how to turn letters into words, into sentences that make sense and that look correct, that look yes. like a W is supposed to look like a W and a Y is supposed to look like a Y, you know? And so, you know, just confirming that and ensuring that we're progressing. Reading is another thing that we can do with him like math where we can talk it through, talk it out, you know, yeah. which, which is a good thing. But yeah, there's, there's definite aspects of this in his own development that have been very challenging for us. Um, I've done a little bit of homeschooling and I have tremendous admiration for anyone who has to do it. Um, anybody who believes that homeschooling is easy had better rethink that exercise because it's not. <laughs> and, and I think there are, as, as Eric's pointing out, some real limitations in terms of homeschooling um, for blind folks, especially in areas that do involve visual stuff like writing. So, yeah. All right, sir. Um, many of our members, I guess, tuned in to our ACB board meeting last Thursday. Um, but are, are, are there things you'd like ACB members to know at this point? Well, I think the, the main thing I would really like for folks to, to know is that uh, the staff of the American Council of the Blind is, is working. We may be working in our own homes or apartments, but we are actively working and we're working uh, pretty significant hours actually. Uh, the technology that, that we've acquired over the last couple of years is working. So it's allowing us to communicate with one another, but also to communicate with you all and to have you all communicate with us. So um, that's something that has been uh, a, a very pleasing thing for me to to witness you acquire this technology um, and use it in a certain way when you're going into the office all the time. But then when you literally can't uh, and you're having uh, 
ring central direct phone calls from the office to you literally your cell phone through an app on your phone uh utilizing zoom being very dependent on zoom as well as ring central for for calls and then all of the work that we've been able to do and much of it being led by cindy van winkle as well as the acb radio team with these community calls paul um and having that all be run through zoom or the majority of it the overwhelming majority of it being run through the utilization of zoom and our zoom account uh really good stuff which is what we're utilizing this evening uh the zoom it, it is platform it is so we've been um you know I, I wouldn't say that we've been lucky because we invested in this stuff uh expecting that it would work but as you know as well as i do technology doesn't always work the way you want it to so but we're, we're doing well. So let me ask you a hard question. Do you think that blind people are being disadvantaged by the pandemic unduly? And, and if so, in what ways? I don't know that we are being disadvantaged unduly. I think that there's a whole lot of us that are being disadvantaged and the blind community is part of it. Um, before we started this evening, um, you and I were talking about grocery service and right. uh, that has been a huge challenge in the blind community um, and it's something that we're keenly aware of but uh, I've got perfectly sighted neighbors uh, on either side of our house that have had to also wait for 11 days <laughs> for, for groceries <laughs> You know, so it's, um, some of it is trying to figure out, you know, what is, what is a societal problem that we share in? Um, and then what is unique to us? One of the challenges that I've seen that our community tends to have that is more unique just by virtue of us not being able to see is the social distancing stuff. Um, right. I've been hearing from folks that, you know, they're uneasy about, uh, going outside and just taking a walk because they're they're not sure in what proximity they're traveling to others. Uh, and but on the other hand, I've also heard others say, well, you know, those folks that can see are actually taking a wider berth <laughs> um, right. from from us as well. And and then you go back to the to the Yang with folks that that utilize guide dogs. Guide dogs don't care about social distancing. Guide dogs are, are there living in the world and they're going to yes. keep doing what they do, right? And keeping mm -hmm. us as, as handlers safe, but it's really incumbent upon the person that's ahead of us to recognize that we're coming up behind, you know, or other things like that. So th there's a, you know, there's a, there's a challenge in, in all of that. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I don't know. I'm interested. What, what do you think? Do you think that there's an undue burden or that we we're being, uh, well, I, I, I think, I guess for me, I think there are, there are dangers of that happening. I think okay. one of the areas where, where, where I think we're in most danger of it happening could be the, the, the way we're going to end up having to vote in November. Um, 
and I suspect you would agree with that. I, I you know, I think we've got to be pretty vigilant and pretty pushy if we're going to make sure that most of the folks who are blind or have low vision are going to be able to vote privately, independently, and verifiably in November. I agree. I absolutely agree. And the work that we've been doing on this has been, um, we've, we've really led uh, the blind community and to a great degree, the disability community with regard to accessible voting over the last number of weeks. And actually over the last number of months with the work we did in West Virginia um, that came to fruition in February. So, uh, so you know, here, here's a question for you. Why did we choose to file a complaint with regard to voting um, that related to New York um, rather than filing an, a national complaint that would have been more overarching and would have put um, pressure on all states to comply? That's a good question. Uh, I think what we saw uh, was an opportunity, uh, and it was a glaring one, um, to, to highlight um, one of the nation's largest states, uh, to, to, to get that on the record. And so in some of the other cases, I don't know, and I'm not at the ground level like uh, Claire Stanley or, or Clark Rockwell are, um, at the ground level, I'm not sure that it was as cut and dry with some of the other states, Paul. Um, uh -huh. We were also uh, taking some legal advice um, from uh, our very capable attorneys at the Washington Lawyers Committee as well. So um, the, the nature of the urgency of doing it was such that we elected to, to move against New York. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. I, I guess the, the other question uh, that, that operates has to do has to do with um, uh, the expected payments and and the way that the, uh, uh, the the way that the CARES Act is is being applied. Do we have any concerns with regard to that? Where blind people are concerned? Uh, interesting question. I I'm not aware at at this time that we have um, significant concerns um, over it. I do know that some of that stuff. Um, had been sort of changing day to day. I'm sure you saw what Claire sent out, uh, Claire Stanley sent out a couple of weeks ago regarding yes. Social Security beneficiaries and, and all of that. Um, what, what we do want to know is if folks are having challenges in receiving them or if they're not receiving them um, so that we can uh, do our own um, advocacy on, on your behalf. Uh, you know, I know of a great many folks that have begun to receive uh, the checks over the past several days. I've been getting lots and lots of emails in the office. So I guess the, the, one, other, the one other question maybe we'll talk about opening this is in, in terms of the pandemic itself, how much information are you getting in at the national level that suggests how widespread the pandemic itself is among blind people? Um, do, do you have any figures that suggest whether, um, whether it's 
uh, its latency is about the same in the blindness community, whether we're doing better, whether we're doing worse? We are not, uh, we have not received any data on that as yet. I do know that there are a couple of organizations um, that are looking uh, more broadly from the, uh, from the disability community perspective at this, um, but we have not received any hard uh, data regarding that yet. Um, you know, anecdotally, I know of uh, individuals who are blind that have unfortunately passed away, uh, both inside and outside of, of ACB. Um, and I know of uh, probably 10 or 12 individuals who have uh, been infected with it and have required medical treatment. But you know, that's, that's just me. Right. Um, right. So it's, it's, it's difficult. And then, you know, you have a whole bunch of people out there that have been infected that have no idea they've been infected. That's the other thing that we're learning. So um, it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge, you know, there's, there's a survey that was conducted by IRA and AFB and others that we participated in dealing with you know, the, the inaccessibility of, of technology uh, during, during the pandemic and, and things of that nature. But in terms of the actual health component, um, I have not been made aware of anything as yet. So I guess one thing that came up on our first Tuesday topic show um, was uh, the fact that there's an awful lot of information that's scrolling across the bottom of television screens uh, that we as blind people know nothing about, but that information is not being regarded as emergency messaging, and therefore um, it, it it's not having the the direct rules that that exist and the and and the legal requirements that exist for emergency communications. Um, do, have have you guys talked at all about whether we're going to go back to the Federal Communications Commission uh, and and raise that as an issue and, and and ask them to perhaps broaden the definition of emergency communication in in the wake of the pandemic? We certainly can. Um, I have to I have to be very honest with you. I I had not heard that come up as a as a problem, and so uh, most certainly. Uh, we can we can absolutely do that. As a matter of fact, we could probably take some take some action and do some outreach this week on that. Um, yeah, it's 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 actually been been interesting because we actually did have some emergency communications come over one of our television channels here, and um, I am a Direct TV user, uh, and it ended up taking me count them eight keystrokes in order to go from. Uh, regular television to the SAP channel, uh, which, which of course is a clear violation of what the law requires for emergency right. communication. Yes. yes. Um, and so, you know, I've already filed a complaint with the federal communications commission with regard to that. And I'm hoping mm -hmm. um, that, that that'll lead to some change down the road. Um, but, but I guess my point is we need to be vigilant if we're, if we're blind people and if we're finding that this kind of thing is happening. Um, I know that I had some immediate response when I filed a complaint with the FCC about a month ago. 
uh, I ended up getting a call from AT&T the next day. <laughs> yeah. The, the FCC um, has, has been very responsive over the last few years. And uh, ACB has a, has a really excellent working relationship with the folks in the Disability Rights Office that um, oftentimes, you know, these complaints go to for sort of triage and then, you know, they figure out which, which bureau within the FCC the, you know, to, to send this stuff. But uh, the folks are responsive. There's actual, you know, there's a couple of blind people that work at the FCC, uh, which is good. And it is, uh, you know, I think to the extent, to the extent that, that we hear about this stuff, we're, we're more than willing to, to raise it. Um, advocacy at acb.org is uh, the email address that, that folks can use to uh, send or share, uh, you know, advocacy concerns or, you know, issues. Also, just dialing the 800 number and uh, asking to speak with Clark or Claire, 800-424-8666. Hey, Eric. North Carolina. Hey, Chris. Hey, Chris. How are you, sir? I'm good. Uh, Thanks for an interesting show. Listen, I wanted to follow up on Paul's question about that uh, DOJ complaint against the Department of Justice. I was wondering what considerations went into uh, choosing to file an administrative complaint as as opposed to filing a lawsuit in federal court. Uh, The feeling of our attorneys was that it was going to be uh, a lot quicker being able to to do this, and there was a um, uh, sort of uh, under the table. There was a desire by DOJ for some action to to happen in one of the states. Um, they did not indicate a specific state, but that they wanted to be able to deal with this issue and. So when the complaint was received, it was received uh, as a friendly complaint, as, as complaints are received or can be received, um, and action, you know, the investigation began quickly. So, and as it turns out, now New York has canceled their primary. Right, uh, but there's still the previous election. election. Right, no, and, and so we will, we will continue, but that's just a little bit of the backstory. Yeah, well, I was wondering because I've been uh, thinking about contacting the North Carolina Protection and Advocacy Agency and or the ACLU and filing a lawsuit on behalf of North Carolina Council of the Blind and, and some of us to get an accessible absentee uh, ballot. So when you guys filed the, the complaint with justice, I, I had to wonder. And then I just read a complaint by NFB, a civil action in Michigan, where, you know, they're... <laughs> They're not really asking for complete accessibility. I mean, they want to be able to use their ballot marking tool, uh, <clears throat> and they don't care that uh, they have to sign it and that they have to address an envelope and send it in, uh, which I thought was strange. Um, it is strange. But, you know, uh, I don't know. What Do you, do you think we uh, should consider filing a lawsuit? I think everything is still on the table just because we did – you know, this in, in one state doesn't doesn't necessarily right. preclude other action. And believe me, 
this is an issue that, that is uh, top of mind in our advocacy world. Um, you know, you're a member of the Advocacy Services Committee, Chris, and we'll chat about okay. it tomorrow night and would be okay. interested in any further thoughts you have. All right. Well, thank you. Have a good evening. Yeah, thank Chris. you. Yep. Next up, we've got 9833. Hi, it's Alice. A couple of things. First, to kind of follow up with what Chris said, I had a phone call Friday from the president of the NFB of Georgia, and she let me know that they had filed a DOJ complaint um, and that it had been assigned to a case manager and that she had given them my name and wanted to know if she or wanted to know if she could give them my name so they could contact me to talk about, you know, the issues we were having as far as the absentee mail bill, um, voting. And I haven't heard from her yet, but just to FYI you that that is happening in Georgia. Now, but what I wanted to do was switch a little bit to um, the healthcare sides of things. Um, this week, as you know, Georgia has been in the news because we're choosing to open up. Um, and some of the ways they've opened up things left me wondering a little bit. But one of the things that's now happening is they're opening up for elective surgeries again and for doctor's appointments, especially if your doctor's um, appointments are inside the hospital, which quite a few of mine are. But herein lies the rub. Apparently, and I'm just assuming, I don't know, but they're not letting you call to make appointments. So my guess would be that's because they don't have anybody there to answer the phones, <laughs> which I would find a little hard to believe. But the only way you can make those appointments is through the quote-unquote hospital portal. And guess what? Not it's not accessible. <laughs> so that's my first thing about all this. My other concern is, and, and I don't know what the answer is, but it's what disturbs me and upsets me the most. And what I worry about the most, um, as far as my fears, I'm, I'm, I'm usually a pretty good advocate, except for when I'm sick and in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a good advocate for myself. And so I've always de- depended on having a family member or somebody with me who could, you know, do my bidding, so to speak. And now that's, you know, that's not, that's not being allowed to happen. And I guess I'm a little disturbed by that because yesterday my youngest brother ha- had a stroke and nobody was allowed to go in with him. And Scary stuff. All that had to happen to think, well, and then it gets even more scarier in Indiana, which um, I was shocked to hear. They've said he's probably going to have to go to a rehab center, but they claim due to HIPAA that they can't tell you which healthcare facilities have issues with the coronavirus. Now, that's disconcerting to me as well because I think people should have the right to know where they're going to send their loved ones who are already compromised because of whatever reason they're ending up to have to go there and then not not you know be able to um, know where where a safe place is going to be so those are just some of my concerns like I said I really worry about it seems to me if we can put on masks and gloves and go to the grocery store and go to the beauty shop that being a hospital setting, there ought to be a way to dang well let those people get up at least one family member or somebody to go in with these people to help advocate and do what needs to be done. 
So I'm done. <laughs> so, well, Ms. Alice, Alice, just before you go, just before you go, t tell us um, the hospital portal. Is it a state hospital or a private one? Um, this is a private one. Thank you. Go ahead, Eric. Well, Alice, what I would say is I, I'd like for you to reach out to, to Clark or Claire regarding the first piece, the, the portal accessibility stuff. Um, that is, that's an issue that um, we deal with on a fairly regular basis. So please reach out. Um, and with regard to the, to the other issue, uh, wow. Um, you know, we've dealt with this uh, in New York uh, because uh, Governor Cuomo in, in late March uh, did an executive order that, that sent folks with COVID who were recovering to rehab and nursing homes, um, which in fact infected a whole much whole bunch more people right so um we're i don't i don't have a good answer um on this because i think again this is another one of these areas paul where we're all kind of getting hosed a little bit um yes. not just not just the blind community and hosed is not a technical term <laughs> but but th this is where the immense frustration with with all of these rules, uh, lack of clarity, uh, over being overly cautious, uh, what have you, I don't know. Some people, some people may be on the other side of this saying, well, you know, we don't want to infect any more people. And that's, I mean, that's probably, that is why that rule exists. But then what you have is you not only have folks who are um, not being uh, advocated for, but you also have folks that are sick and suffering without their, their loved ones. And that's, yeah, that's, and that's, that's that what we've seen at, yeah, that's what we've seen at the heart of this pandemic. Yeah. Mr. Rick, who's next? Okay. We've got phone number ending in four, six, four, zero. Hi, Betty Passanati from Philadelphia. Go ahead, um, Betty. Hi. I don't know that we're, well, I, I think we are being disadvantaged in a number of ways, not only visually impaired necessarily, but it seems like uh, since they didn't invent self-driving cars yet, we're all stuck seeking these services that are drive-through services, whether it's testing, whether it's food, uh, you know, food delivery to try to take something out, whether it's I found out the bank my husband wanted to go to is the branch isn't open. It's only the drive-through that's opened. And now I understand one drive-through testing place in West Philadelphia, uh, some people actually brought folding chairs with them and walked up there and sat. So I suppose we could do that. But the services we use, whether it's paratransit or Uber or whatever, they're not going to wait in line with you. I don't Well, they might, hopefully, I guess. But it's, uh, it, it's awkward. You can't do it independently, really. <laughs> and, and I don't think they're going to suddenly issue us cars. And I, you know, that, and it's a, uh, it's, it's, uh, you just hear about all these things that are available, but it seems like they're so near and yet so far. Because they're, And the other thing is that even things are, that may or may not be accessible, say, and do this online, do that online, do the other online, the demand is too high. The liquor yep. stores, a classic example here in the city, my, finally they opened enough of them that uh, my husband could get on the phone, 
and uh, get an Uber and get what he wanted, and uh, he was very, very happy. But whether it's that or whether it's check your taxes or whatever it is, there isn't, or homeschooling for that matter, that there isn't the capacity that was, that that uh, is needed for something like this. Granted, this is an emergency situation, but still, I think it means there, there needs to be a general increase in capacity if we're all supposed to join the technological age. Uh, right. That's that's my comment. Very good. So, Betty, I want to want to make one comment just because I think it's interesting. We we talk about things that have been bad, and one of the interesting responses, at least in my county, has been an an interesting stance by our paratransit provider. Our paratransit provider has now uh, ceased to charge for paratransit rides and has provided folks with a single driver, single rider system that is prepared to go through drive-throughs and then take you back home, which is really pretty cool. Indeed Um, it is. And, And I have not checked that in Philadelphia. I know that they're not charging you. But I didn't know they had a system where they'd wait with you for a drive-through. Well, they will. They will here, Eric. Do, do Do you know anything more about transportation changes that have happened? Uh, I don't know that anything here locally has changed per se. Although, uh, when you call to make your reservations, they um, they have indicated that uh, some of the the wait. You know, you have to wait an hour until you can. Uh, get another ride that the that the driver would wait for you and bring you back. Um, Excellent. So you would you would be assured uh, for the most part, you know, that you'd have the same the same driver, same same level of exposure. The next person up is Debbie Grubb. Debbie, I have a multi-level question, but it all deals with technology, and you know, I've spent a good bit of my life trying to do my part to ensure a level playing field. But I wonder if some of the ways that bring, that bring most disadvantageous circumstances to us, as, as Paul was speaking about earlier is access to technology. Um, For example, Alice was talking about the inaccessible portal. That certainly needs to be fixed. No question about it. But if you're in an emergency situation and you've got Ira, they will go on that portal for you until it's fixed and help you make your appointment. You know, we can order groceries. We can get on these calls and do many things. And so I am wondering if the techno and even with this mail validating um i'm doing a lot of work on that here where i live and we don't ha- the only the only way we have of doing it is through technology through going online and you know so i'm just curious to know what you think about the role of the technological divide and if there is anything we can do to circumvent it and how and that sort of thing. Because it seems to me that most of the disadvantages are surrounding that. And I'm just interested in hearing what you all have to say. And thank you. Eric. Well, there's a lot there. <laughs> um, thanks, for the, thanks for the questions, Debbie. So I think uh, when you get into the discussion of, of of accessible technology or utilizing technology, there, there's there's a couple things. One is uh, the socioeconomic component within our within our community, where um, lots of folks don't necessarily have access to the most 
up-to-date technology. And given the nature of technology these days and how quickly it, um, it moves on, uh, sometimes things get out of date pretty quick. Um, the other, one of the other components of this is our level, our actual honest to God level of knowledge as it pertains to technology, be it screen readers, be it, uh, note takers, but also how those things interface with day-to-day, uh, applications that we're expected to interface with. So whether it's a, a portal for a medical facility whether it's with an e-commerce website like Instacart or <clears throat> Best Buy or you name it, how well do we know some of this stuff? And so there, there are those uh, innate challenges and, you know, there's, there's an education gap, I think, that exists in our, in our community uh, that, that past about high school, you don't get any, any more real training unless you're going through the rehab system on, on access technology. Um, we're not going back to the days of the Braille, Braille writer. Um, that's simply not how, you know, how technology is, is moving. Um, it's important to know Braille. It is a life skill. It's a valuable life skill. But one of the other valuable life skills is, is learning how to interface with commercial products in applications, and some of it is, is not accessible, no matter how good you are with JAWS or voiceover or what have you. Some of it simply is not. It's been, it's been poorly constructed. And that's part of the reason why ACB is around, is to help to advocate for that. But there are other components here that I think are very real as well. Interested in your thoughts, Paul. So if we acknowledge the, um, if we acknowledge the, the, the existence of a divide, and, and let's say that divide may, may exist so that older people who are losing their vision are likely to be less capable technologically. Um, and younger people are, are likely to be more. The, the real question is, what do we do about it? And I, I, and I think that, at least for me, and, and, and I'll let Eric comment in a second too, for, for me, the big deal is to say to uh, agencies, and we're doing a lot better working with them now, I think, who are working with blind people and older blind people that we need to expand the amount of training that's available in, in basic technology skills um, for everybody, because we live in a society now, it seems to me where basic technological literacy is a sine qua non for survival. And, and that doesn't mean survival for just young folks. It means survival for everybody who's blind in our community. And so we have to somehow, I think, put pressure on the system to create a much broader range of training um, that becomes available for people who are blind to, to, to make sure they understand some of the technologies that are out there for them. I, I completely agree with you. It is, I have to say, it's a challenge um, learning... <laughs> jaws while trying to be um productive in your job right so it is those are two different things and when you're young you have the luxury of just messing around with jaws trying to make it work uh when you're older you have a job you've got deadlines you have deliverables and uh microsoft word has a new update 
which means that JAWS has to adapt to that. And now you got to learn some new things. But how do you go about doing it? Hi, this is Carol calling from Nashville. Um, it is not just older, newly blinded people. We have a couple right now in Nashville where the man is in a rehab center. We don't know the status of the rehab center. Um, he uh, not only is blind and in his 70s, but low income and also has a hearing impairment. And so his wife also blind and not very technologically knowledgeable because we really don't have much training here in Tennessee at all, has been totally unable to advocate for him. And I don't know how we help somebody like that, but that's a really concrete example. Thank you, Carol. Who's next, Mr. Rick? Karen. It that uh, once the they always advocate for people that want to get help from the agency if you're 55 and older. But not everybody that's blind, especially now that technology's around, quote-unquote works at a facility. They may want to work from home or want to get better at their skills before they even try to look for a job or, or be independently independent and not need to, be, to work. Whatever their reason is, it doesn't matter. But my point is, they always say, oh, you can get trained from the your agency if you're over 55 and not wanting to look for work. But if you're below 55, they don't want to touch you with a 10-foot pole. Well, if you're below 55 and aren't going to work, I think that might be true, Karen. But if you're, if you're under 55 and you say you want a job, then you probably have more access to training. Wouldn't you agree, Eric? Yes, I would. Yeah. So... But I think, but I think you're right, Karen, in in um, in bringing up the the issue. There are, there are a bunch of folks who are under 55 who don't fall into the older blind program, and who are not likely to go to work, who are really being shut out of 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 some of the appropriate training they could benefit from. So thank you, Karen. Who's next? Next up, we have Chris Bell. Chris. I know I'm double dipping, but since you were short of hands. So oh, I'm wondering, Eric and, and Paul, and this is maybe kind of a crazy idea, but I'm wondering if ACB couldn't form a foundation and get it funded however you get anything funded, uh, raising money on the internet, etc., whose sole purpose would be to teach uh, blind people how to use uh, JAWS and other assistive technology. And to seek funding for that, whether it be from rehab or Ability One or, or whatever, because we have people that are really good at this, and that's certainly not me. But we've got lots of people that are very knowledgeable, and it seems to me, at least in theory, it could be a, a way of raising some money. Mr. Uh, there. Yeah, uh, you know, so starting a foundation, wow. Chris always has the greatest questions, <laughs> whether he's calling into a radio show or calling me in the office. Um, you know, part of, uh, you know, part of what we're around to do is to, is to advocate. And I, I think that it would be cool if we were able to, uh, in essence, 
start uh, a, a new arm of ACB that would be focused on, uh, you know, the, the access computer technology type work. Um, that, that would take um, quite a bit of funding uh, over many years to do. And, uh, you know, I'm not, not sure how that could fit into, um, you know, our, our overall sort of broad perspective over the next three to five years of who, who it is ACB wants to be, uh, what it is we want to be able to, to do. It would be a, an invaluable service to, to provide to the community, that's for sure. But uh, a lot more would need to go into it and uh, more folks would need to be hired to, to raise the money to do it. Thank you, sir. Rick? Okay, we have Debbie Grubb back. Debbie? Dun, 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 dun. Not her again. Here I am. <laughs> okay, everybody, this is my question. It goes back to technology again. ACB, among other organizations, has done some phenomenal work in terms of web web access and the way to determine, you know, web access and the whole bit. And I, I commend you for it. My question is, how do we deal with the apathy and the plain not caring of people who create websites and hospital portals and the like who don't really give a flying flip? How, how do we make them pay the piper? How do we get them to do it? Because even if they don't want to, and it's even if they don't care, it's the right thing to do, that it's the legal thing to do. Why in this country, in the, sec, in the 2020, does, does Alice have a portal in a hospital that's inaccessible? I, I just, apathy is so, such an enemy of ours, and it's something I think at some point that should be addressed about dealing with it in Tuesday topics. But what do we do about this when we've come so far and this thing is still going on? What do we do? How do we advocate? What, what do you suggest? <clears throat> My guest, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, De Debbie has been a longtime member of the Advocacy Services Committee for, for ACB. Um, and I've, gosh, been talking to you since I came to work at ACB, I feel like. Um, <laughs> so, what I would say is, number one, we need to know when these things are, are not working, okay? So we can't, as an organization, we can't help if we don't know. So advocacy at acb.org, please. Call the 800 number and ask to speak with Clark or Claire. Um, you know, ultimately, it's very difficult for us to go and, and litigate company by company. That's very difficult. Part of where we've been able to have success is to collaborate with companies to identify the issue, approach them, and, um, and talk through how to resolve the issue. And it's my hope here within the next couple of weeks, you're going to see an announcement from us and a very large company uh, that will, that will um, be an example of that. I, I do think that it is important for voices to be heard. And so whether it is uh, doing stuff on social media, calling out companies, um, I myself, I've had it. I've had it. Um, I'm with you, Debbie. 
in terms of it being 2020 and having a, having a website not be accessible, not being able to, to buy something off a website, you know, e-commerce should be very easy. And there are plenty of examples of it being easy. Um, you know, I, I think, I think that there is probably some training that we can, that we can take a look at doing, uh, d- developing and, and working with the membership, um, over the next year to, to kind of talk about uh, sort of the how-tos. So Eric, let um, me ask you a hard question. In, in, in 2010, um, the, the Department of Justice published uh, a range of questions that ACB made some pretty concerted answers to. Indeed. Um, and uh, the, the answers to those questions essentially said, uh, we're sick of it. We're not going to take it anymore, and and we're no longer prepared to talk about incremental um, incremental change. We we want it to be recognized that that people who are blind have have civil rights to access to technology, and on and on and on and on and on. The reality is that for the whole Obama administration and for the whole of the first term of President Trump, um, at, at least as far as I know. Um, the the proposed rulemaking package that that was up for grabs in 2010 has not been brought back and nothing has changed essentially in this whole issue in terms of access to websites and access to technology in the last decade a do you agree with that and b is it is it time for us to to, to take some kind of more concerted action to suggest our disgust with this? So I think that overall, um, not a lot has really changed. <laughs> you know, the, the WCAG guidelines are out there. The yeah. International uh, Web Accessibility Guidelines are out there. Uh, to a large degree, they are being adopted in various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and if companies abide by them, they, they wind up, even if they don't want to, if they abide by them, they wind up making a pretty accessible website. Uh, agreed. Um, you know, the ability to litigate is always there. It's always been there um, on this. The challenge with litigation is you don't know what you're going to get once you do it. You could wind up making things worse. And but, so but I, it's... A, but I okay. guess my question, and, I, and, and, and I'm going to be a little pushy here. My, my question is, the Department of Justice is the entity uh, that is set aside for, by our government to enforce the laws that are passed. And clearly in this area, um, they have chosen not to act. And, and, and are we not at a point where we've got to say to them in some way, this is not okay? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. Um, the challenge, and, and I'm, not, I'm not doing this to damper things, the challenge is that you have people on both sides of the aisle. Both parties don't really want this. And, and it's direct evidence is the NPRM from 2010 to 2016 that never went anywhere. And right. nothing's going anywhere now, right? So, um, Got it. It is, it, is a, it is a major frustration of mine. But, but the, but the um, fact is... So what do you want, what do you want to do, Paul? What would well, you like to I, do? I don't know what I want to do. 
what 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 I want. <laughs> at least I'm not sure. I, I mean, I have some ideas. I mean, bombs sure. are sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm open to. Oh, geez. All right. Um, I'm but, open to ideas. No. I'm open to uh, anything. You know. Um, but, but I guess I guess I think my my real point is that that we are citizens too. We are. We have the right to expect the law to be enforced in a way that that enables us as people who are blind um, to have the same access as everybody else has. And I mean, that's what ACD is all about. We know that. And, and, and I'm really not trying to give you a hard time. I guess I'm, I guess I'm asking how, how we get past the, the place where we are now, where, where, where essentially uh, it, it would seem that a government that ought to be providing protection for people with disabilities and support uh, for fuller inclusion, uh, essentially doesn't want to play. It's true. And you, you have, uh, you know, the Domino's case that sat out there. Yeah. Um, I think, ultimately, I think the, the only way that, that this moves forward is if there is a concerted effort by likely the whole of the blind community um, to stand and uh, either hold an event in the form of a rally or a protest outside of yep. Yep. Uh, a major corporation who's yep. a culprit, um, not outside the Department of Justice. Everybody does that. Um, but outside of a, of a, of a company that's, that's not doing a good job and that hasn't mm-hmm. been doing a good job. I think that, that there's... You know, there's the, the public shaming component of it. Um, yeah. That while uh, at times a bit unseemly is likely, if we want something to get done, would, would likely be the, the, the next step if you just take a look at what has gone on societally. Right. With issues uh, outside of us. Yeah. Mr. Rick, who's next? Yeah, phone number 4948. You're up. Hey, Paul, Eric, it's Terry Pacheco. Um, enjoying the call tonight. Two quick issues I'd like to bring up. Number one is uh, with the idea of a process that you were just talking about. We talked about this many years ago with audio description. What we should be doing is think about this. In, rather than a protest outside a company, what we should be doing is relying on social media in that, <clears throat> excuse me, if I put something out to my friends on social media about a company that's not making their website accessible or that I can't use, and so therefore I'm not going to purchase from them, my 227 friends, only 50 of which are blind, are also going to pick up on that and it gets moved that way and we could have a much bigger impact by doing something like that than we could even with a protest. A protest is passe today. Social media would be a really good way to do it. On the set, My second subject, also on social media, is ACB has a history of uh, presenting various types of awards. You know, we've got the ambassador and the, uh, the George card, and we used to at least have a something like a public service and I can't remember exactly what it's called now 
we should absolutely be looking at the idea, though I know we're spending a lot to use Zoom, but stop and think of how much good Zoom has done for, the, for everyone, not just the blindness community, but especially for us as far as saving people's sanity. Um, through this pandemic. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I think that's a really good point, Terry, and thanks, thanks for I both. absolutely think we should have a, that we should be presenting an award to Zoom, and it should be done at the opening session, and we should advertise it big time, because that would also give us some very good PR. Eric, final thoughts. Well, uh, this was fun. It was a good time. I hope you have me back again. Um, you know, I just, uh, I am really energized by the amount of new and different content that's coming on to ACB radio. And uh, it's nice to have Tuesday topics back, Paul. Um, I thank enjoy you. it. And uh, thank you very much for having me on. You're more than welcome. And next week on Tuesday topics, everyone, we're going to have the big two, our largest two state affiliates in the country. Uh, we'll have their presidents join us and talk about how, as large state affiliates, they're responding to the pandemic and what's coming up in their futures. Thank you so much for joining us on Tuesday Topics this evening. It's been wonderful, and it's been great to have Eric with us, and thanks to all who participated in the call tonight. Your opinions do matter. Tuesday Topics is your program. Join us and continue to share your opinion. It's what makes the difference between democracy and oligarchy. Thank you. <laughs>